A number of years back, I had the privilege of being in the Philippines, and uh, we were, I was with a number of young people, and we were running a youth camp. And uh, on, the, on our day off at the end of the trip, we, we had a, a day to go shopping. And it took us to this place that famously had um, tremendous knockoff items uh, that were looked exactly like the you know, expensive name brand stuff, but they were, they were knockoffs. <clears throat> and uh, I remember going down the street and looking at these things and going, whoa, I can't believe the price on these Adidas. Oh, they're Abibas. Whoa, look at the price on these Nike. Oh, they're Schnikes. And I ended up buying some, uh, some Pumas that, that turned out to be Pupas because after like a few weeks, my feet were like, you know, the soles were worn out of them. And uh, I actually bought a movie that, uh, I think this was back when Wolverine Origins movie came out or something like that. It wasn't even on, it wasn't on DVD yet. It might have even still been in theaters and there it was in the street. And I was like, wow, I got to get this. So I buy this thing for some crazy $5 or something. And I remember watching it and uh, there was like 10 seconds in the movie where the, 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 the picture cut out and the audio kept going and there was like these hand drawings kind of filling in the plot until it finished because the movie was, now how do they get this stuff? Just knockoffs, not the, not the real thing, these cheap imitations. And uh, it was a fun time. Our, our text this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And Ecclesiastes is a book that is highly interested in finding a sense of meaning, joy, and satisfaction uh, in this very difficult thing called life without settling for cheap knockoffs. Cheap knockoffs for your sense of meaning. Cheap knockoff for your sense of identity. Cheap, a cheap knockoff for your sense of joy and pleasure. Something that lasts, but then it fades like the wind that you can't grasp. This is the terminology that, that uh, Solomon, the author, uses. Uh, for, the, the, for the pleasure that's kind of constantly fading. A cheap knockoff. And uh, so this book, all of Ecclesiastes, is really about that. It, it's about looking for real meaning and real joy and real satisfaction that's available without purposely distracting yourself from thinking about the inevitable trajectory of life, which, of course, is death. And what Solomon's really interested in and what this book is really about is, do you have a sense of meaning, identity, and joy that is so strong and so pervasive and so true that you can think very deeply about where life is going and not have it dissipate like fog dissipates when the sun comes up? This is what this, is, this book is about. And Solomon is a deep thinker. And so this book is a difficult book to kind of unpack because he, it really runs it like a seminar where he makes a couple of arguments and he continually unpacks them. He introduces him in the first chapter. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time or you're new to the scriptures, he introduces himself at the beginning. The word for, in the Hebrew is the kohelet. And the kohelet in the Hebrew is a word for meaning deep investigator, right? One who is a great collector of wisdom, who knows where an argument is going. This is how he introduces himself. And the word Ecclesiastes is uh, the Latin translation of that. Right? So the Old Testament was translated into Greek, and then that Greek word was translated into Latin, and the Latin stuck, and so the, the book is called Ecclesiastes. It's, just, it's a, the, the title of the author. And, of course, nobody cares about etymology anymore, so why did I say that? But it just needed you to know. But that's why the book is, is, uh, is called what it is. And so, really, um, because he's very thoughtful, and because this chapter, we're about to read the whole chapter, because it's very deep and very thoughtful... Uh, Solomon is not interested in pat answers. 
And deep thinkers aren't interested in pat answers. And thoughtful people aren't interested in pat answers. Nobody, he's not interested in saying, listen, don't think that deeply about it. It's just going to make you depressed and gloomy. So here, just have another drink. Right? He, Solomon's not interested in that. Thoughtful people aren't interested in that. They don't want knockoffs. And so the goal really um, of Ecclesiastes is to lead the readers out of hopelessness. And so Solomon, the author, and ultimately God, who superintended and authored this, gets us to honestly consider our hopelessness so that in our search for hope, we don't settle for these cheap knockoffs. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 1. This I laid to heart examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are all in the hand of God. And whether it's love or hate, man doesn't know, both are before him. It's the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who doesn't sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. There's this meaningless evil that's in all that is done under the sun. And it's that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, and their memory is forgotten. And their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more to share in all that is done in life under the sun. So go. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God's already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let oil not be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. Because that's your lot in life. That's the work with which you work under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave to which you're going. And again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man doesn't know his time, like fish that are taken up in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when death suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was this little city with a few men in it, and a king came, and he besieged the city. But there was found in that city a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in the quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. This is God's word. Now, if you are here this morning and you're exploring faith, Ecclesiastes is a great book to, to, to start with. And the reason is because Solomon sits in the seat of the skeptic. He says a lot of things um, from the position of kind of a pragmatic agnostic, which really describes most people. If you're here seeking and searching, that probably describes you 
and probably describes most of the people you know. Because the, a, a, a secular position means you're not sure, right? So the word secular comes from the Latin secularia, which means the present. So a secular agnostic is a person who says, I don't really know if there's a God, so since we don't really know, we, all we have is the present, so live for that. So that's what Solomon does. He sits in that seat, kind of looks at life that way. And since chapter 1, he repeatedly orbits around these ideas. If you've been here over the last you know, nine weeks, you've heard these arguments he keeps on bringing up. Justice and injustice, the randomness of suffering, the problem of pleasure that keeps on fading, this elusive thing called satisfaction, this tireless treadmill of trying to garner your identity through achievement. Right from chapter one, here's his thesis. He says, if there is no God who created the sun and all you have is the short, fragile life under the sun, then everything's meaningless. You can say this is meaningful, that's meaningful, but it's all meaningless because it's all going to get washed away in an ocean of time. Because if there is no God, then your death puts you into a state of non-existence, so it's meaningless. This is, this is his thesis. And he knows our objections. He knows that when we hear that, and as I was reading through chapter 9 there, and he keeps making these poignant statements that kind of run, you know, they grate you the wrong way, and you're like, oh, I don't like that, I don't agree, but wait, no. Solomon is anticipating all of our, all of our arguments, and... Um, and he, and, he, and he knows that we're going to say, you know, hey, kind of just live for the moment. But again, Ecclesiastes doesn't want us to settle for cheap knockoffs. Doesn't want us to settle for ideas that in the end are just going to get washed away in an ocean of time. So really, what chapter 9 is saying, which is what the whole book is saying, is have the guts to be consistent. If, have the guts to be consistent in your worldview. If you're going to say your origins are meaningless because you are a collocation of molecules that came, get, came together accidentally for no reason and no purpose. If you're going to say origins are meaningless, and then you're going to say that there's no God, so your death means non-existence, and non-existence is meaningless. Solomon is saying, have the guts to be consistent then and say your life is meaningless. Don't stick your head in the sand and say your origins are meaningless, death is non-existent and meaningless, but right now, right here and now, man, we can rage against the universe and live really meaningful lives. That's why Solomon's like, what are we going to do so we can have true joy if we think deeply about where all this thing is going? So in the first six verses, he's talking about injustice and suffering that's, that's common to everybody. And that's why he's saying things like, you can love or hate, you can be moral or immoral, you can, do, you can worship or not worship. But he's struggling with this because he's saying, you know, it seems like bad things happen to good people all the time. And maybe you're here and your struggle is to believe in God is that there's injustice in the world. Maybe you're a Christian and you've got these like secret doubts that you haven't felt like you could share with your family or friends because you look out on the world as suffering and injustice and you're having a hard time grappling with God because of it. That's what Solomon's doing here. He's going, wow, seems like random, random things are happening all the time and, good, and bad things happen to good people. So what do we do with this? Well, the injustice that's in the world isn't a good argument for the non-existence of God. And in fact, if you reject the existence of God based on injustice, <clears throat> you're still left with injustice. But you have a bigger problem. You have no basis for your injustice. That's what he's provoking in verse 9. I'm going to show you in a minute. Because we can look out and go, why the suffering? Why the injustice? Oh, it's so angering. There can't be a God. Well, now you're still left with all the problems you had before, only now. What's your basis for your outrage? What's your basis for your injustice? 
See, in verse 4, he makes this little statement. We don't get it because we're North Americans. He goes, hey, a, a living dog is better than a dead lion. This is actually a massive commentary on ethics. See, because I grew up with dogs in the house that were pets. Many of you have dogs that are pets. Many of you love your dogs. You, you dress your dogs. You talk about your dogs like they're part of your family. Right? And that's wonderful. In the ancient world, when Solomon is writing this, and still in many cultures today, you don't let dogs in your house. They are mangy, filthy scavengers that steal your, rummage through your garbage and try and steal your chickens. And, and when a dog comes, you throw rocks at it. And that's the context when, for a dog when Solomon mentions dog. He says, hey, if there is no God and therefore no divine standard of justice, and it seems as though life is a bit of a crapshoot and good things happen to bad people, then it's better to be a mangy mutt, ethically speaking, than a noble lion who's dead. Because all of your nobility is no good to you if you're in a state of non-existence. But the mangy mutt who's scavenger, scavenging around and do what he needs to do to survive and stealing stuff and whatever, it, uh, hey, at least he's alive. That's Solomon's commentary. He says, our anger at injustice and saying, oh, we're going to forsake that there could be a God that created the sun, and that, therefore that's, that makes me angry, so there can't be a God because there's injustice. Now you still have the injustice. Not only that, you have a problem for the basis of your injustice. Because uh, I'll, I'll give you an example this way. If you go to the southwest uh, of Paris, you will find the International Bureau of Weights and Measures. And that is where, in the southwest of Paris, is where you will find the meter the capital M meter, the kilogram, the capital K kilogram, I mean the standard, the standards of weights and measurements by which all other weights and measurements must align to. And so the basis on something being right or wrong is you put it against, you, you, go to the, you would go to the, the southwest of, of uh, Paris and you would measure what you think is correct against the international standard. And what Solomon is saying is, if there is no divine bureau of ethics and standards of what is right and wrong, if there's no divine judge, then who are you to look on somebody else's life and say that the way that they're behaving is that they're like a mangy mutt? Why do you get to say you're the noble lion? You have no basis for that. All you're left with is, I prefer this over that. Our culture values this, and that culture values that. Our political system thinks this is the correct way to do it, and that political system says that is the correct way to do it. So on what basis, if there is no God, can you climb up into the throne and sit down and then dictate morals and ethics for the rest of us? This is the dilemma, right? And this is what Solomon is kind of putting, putting forward. Because here's the thing. For something to be good, goodness... Good is measured according to purpose. The big argument in Ecclesiastes is, is there a God that created the sun or is there only life under the sun? And so for something to be called good, that is directly correlated to its purpose. If, there is, if something has no purpose, you have no basis of which to say it's good or bad. If I give you a Rolex watch and you've never seen a watch, you don't know what this thing is that's called a watch, and somebody comes up to you and says, is that a good watch? you don't know if it's good if you don't know its purpose. If you use that Rolex watch to hammer nails, it's a very bad watch. 
because you're now abusing its purpose. I mean, you have no concept of its purpose. So on what basis do we look out on humanity? See, this is the dilemma. This, is the, this, has been, this was Plato's problem for the last five books of his, ten books of his, of his Republic, which, which fundamentally you know, affected greatly the way that we view justice and political science, right? Western political science is kind of like, you know, as some people say, you know, Plato with footnotes, right? So this is the dilemma of justice. Who gets to say it? Who gets to say it? So, so Solomon's kind of provoking all of this. And so the outrage that you might feel about injustice in the world or death in the world, that's a clue. That's a clue that's pointing you to God. Because there's this thing rising up inside you saying, it's not right, but where, where, is, this, where is this coming from, this desire for justice? Where is this, when you see death and you rage against it, where is... Where does that desire for joy without end and pleasure that never fades and life without horizon, where does that all come from? Well, in the words of the great atheist turned Christian writer, C.S. Lewis, who was also a philosopher, he said this way, if the innermost longing in your soul cannot be satisfied by anything in this world, then it's logical to conclude that you were made for more than this world. And so Solomon continues in the verses 7 through 10. If you read verses 7 through 10 this afternoon as you go back over this to fact check my sermon, which is always a great idea, you read, you read through 7 to 10, and here's what you're going to find. Uh, it seems like his philosophy is light, he's, it seems like he's lightening up, but then he keeps on throwing in these little existential digs. He says, eat, drink, and be merry. And we're like, yes. Let your garments always be white. You know, live a clean life. Yes. Let not oil be lacking on your head. You know, be prosperous. Live long and prosper. We say, yes. You know, love your spouse. Love the one you're with. Yes. All the days of your vain, meaningless life. No! Solomon, why'd you have to ruin it? And then he continues, whatever you do, do with all your might. Yes. Because after all, there's no work or knowledge or wisdom in the grave, which is where you're all headed. No! You see that? Some of you, like me, uh, listen, I'm guilty of preaching bumper sticker theology for most of my adult life. And so I'd pull out little verses in there, hey, whatever you do with your hand, do with all your mind. Okay, that's a good one. Hey, love the one you're with. That's a good one. You kind of, we could pull these things up. But when you take it all together with what Solomon's saying, he's like, hey, yeah, go eat and drink. You want to have knockoff joy, knockoff pleasure. You want to chase after these little things so that you're, essentially your idea of meaning and joy in life is one, living from one distraction from the next? He goes, no, I'm not interested in that. I tried it already, and while I was nursing my hangover, after I built all the houses you could want and pools that you want, had all the parties you want, drank all the wine you want, had all the sex you want, I walked my walk of shame, nursed my hangover, and thought, you know, that didn't infuse any more meaning into my life. It's worse. And so that's why he says this. He says, no. Then you go to verses 11 through 12, and he highlights this kind of random general injustice I was talking about before. The race isn't to the swift. The battle's not to the strong. Food doesn't go to the wise. The wealth, is, wealth doesn't go to the brilliant or favor to the learned. This is what he says. Time and chance happen to them all. So what are we going to do? Where are we going to turn? I mean, by the, time you, by the time you get here, you're thinking, my goodness, Solomon, listen, please, uh, philosophy teacher, we just want to dance and have a good time while this ship goes down. You know, like, we don't want to think this deeply about it. Let us rearrange the deck chairs. Don't talk about the iceberg. Like, that's what we want. <laughs> just pour me another drink, man. 
I don't want to think about this. And Solomon's like, what? You don't live a life sticking your head in the sand, this meaningless thing. Look, for, look deeply for, for this uh, true joy. So by the time you get to this section in the text, you're thinking, somebody save me. But then in verse 13, you are given a tremendous moment of prophetic foreshadowing that will pull you out of your philosophical depression and will lift your eyes towards the hope of your liberation. In verse 13, he tells a little story. It seems like it's unconnected. Huge commentary on ethics. And then all of a sudden he goes, you know, there was this wisdom I saw. I can't stop thinking about it. He talks about the poor man that saved the city. What's that about? Let's look at it. He says, I saw this thing. It seemed great to me. The word Solomon uses to describe this wisdom in the Hebrew is, is gadol. And in the Hebrew, gadol means it's exceedingly great. It's put, such, it's put such an impression on you, you can't stop thinking about it. So Solomon says, I saw this thing, though. I'm looking at the randomness of life, the randomness of suffering. What does it all mean if we... And then he goes, but you know, I can't stop thinking about this wisdom that I, that I saw. And he, and he tells this story. And it, it imprinted on him like a little duck that imprints on their mother. And they just has to keep following the mom wherever she goes. This is what he says. A small city is besieged by, this, uh, by a king. And then this poor wise man saved the city. But nobody remembers the poor wise man. The people were doomed. There was no way out. But then a poor man comes with saving wisdom. Why was the man poor? Shouldn't poor, shouldn't poor people be wealthy and successful because they're wise? How can a wise person be poor? Not only is this a saving wisdom, this is a serving wisdom. He's poor, not because he's not wise and he doesn't know what he's doing with his life. He's poor because he's living his life in a way that benefits others at his own expense. This is a saving wisdom. This is a serving wisdom. And then it says the man wasn't simply forgotten, like they forgot about him. Verse 16 says they actually despised him. So that means that this Savior was intentionally forgotten. The people who were saved by him turned on him, despised him, tried to erase all memory of him. These verses read like a prophecy, provoking us to think about a poor man who was wise, who used serving, saving wisdom to save his doomed people, Christ alone. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 looks back on this prophetic word with fulfillment and it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor so that you, through his poverty, would become rich. And throughout biblical history, God continually extended scandalous saving grace, scandalous saving serving wisdom, continually saving his people who continued to despise him and forget him. And then God came in Jesus Christ and his people still despised him and still rejected him. And then in 33 AD, under Pontius Pilate, God weaves himself forever into human history. And on a Roman cross, Jesus Christ dies a sacrificial death, offering salvation, which is the saving, serving wisdom of God on display. 
to pull us out of the senselessness, to pull us out of the meaninglessness, to keep us from turning towards these cheap knockoffs, to tie us over until we die and enter into a state of non-existence where nothing really matters. No. God, the God who created the sun, who gives meaning to all of this life under the sun, comes as this poor, wise man with this saving, serving wisdom for you and for me to deal with our common enemy, to deal with our biggest problem. Friends, you and I have stresses and frustrations and trials we have to deal with when we leave here on Monday morning, all of us do, but Jesus Christ has dealt with your ultimate biggest problem. And yet, we forget him. We forget this wise man. We forget his saving wisdom. We forget his serving wisdom. We forget it. How is the cross wisdom? It's wisdom because God is perfectly loving and perfectly just. Therefore, he only accepts what is perfectly loving and perfectly just. So the wisdom of God was to come for you and provide a life that was perfectly loving and perfectly just. Jesus Christ provided for you everything that God in, God in his perfection requires from you. This is the saving, serving wisdom. So that, you see, because there is a divine bureau of standards, that means that, see, when Solomon says it's better to be a, a living mangy dog than it is to be a dead lion, he's pontificating on what it would mean if there was no divine judgment. Because if there's no divine judgment, it doesn't matter how you live. You can say, well, no, but we're leaving the world a better place for the next generation. But in a billion years from now, when the sun burns out, like all stars do, every, this thing you're calling meaning is a cheap knockoff. But in Jesus Christ, though, there's an eternal reality. His resurrection teaches us things, points us towards an eternal reality. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ went to the cross and he and in the saving, serving wisdom of God, he provided everything that we required so that when we stand before the Bureau of Divine Standards, good news, church. Even though in and of ourselves we're all mangy mutts and Jesus Christ was the only noble lion, guess whose track record you get on Judgment Day? See, the good news of the gospel is that we already have our verdict, church. And that... It gives us a radical sense of purpose and joy with which we look at all of the trials and the hardships of life. You see, but we forget, we forget this. Just like in the text when Solomon says, but you know, this wise man, he was forgotten. We forget. We spiral into worry about the future. We wallow in bitterness of the past. We nurse fear and anger in moments where we feel utterly helpless. And we forget the poor wise man who saved us by defeating death itself. But here's the good news, church. When you forget God, and you do, and when you forget Jesus and his grace, and you do, I should be saying we do, I do, when we forget him, he never forgets us. You see, because on the cross, Jesus Christ, who was rich but became poor, who is the wise man who saved us, the city of God, he hung there, and this is what he said. He said, my God, my God. Why have you forgotten me? The wise poor man who was forgotten. Jesus was forgotten by God in suffering so that God will never forget you and yours. Jesus was utterly alone in his darkest hour so that God will never leave you alone in yours. Jesus was abandoned so that you will always be remembered. 
And so now we look back on this entire passage. We look back on chapter 9 through a cross-shaped lens, and suddenly it isn't depressing, it's liberating. It isn't meaningless, it's rich with meaning. Verse 7 says, eat, drink, and be merry. So eat, drink, and be merry, church. Not to forget where your life is going, to remember where your life is going. Verse 8 says, God already approves of what you do. Dress in white, anoint your head with oil. You've been saved by grace. There's no more earning. The gospel's like that dead scoreboard up there. I love that we have it in here. No more religious scorekeeping. God is not keeping score. Jesus Christ has done it all. There's nothing left for you to do. There's no earning for you. God already approves of what you do. You're in Christ, are you not? So now, if you've been saved in grace, live to the glory of his grace. I mean, what else is there? There's nothing else but to desire to bear the family image. Christian obedience has nothing to do with earning. It's everything to do with imitation. Verse 9 says, enjoy your life. Whatever you do, whatever you put your hand to do, do it with all your might. Why not? Of course. Because in the end, it's not death but life. The resurrection of Jesus reminds you, you get a resurrection. God's going to restore all things and he's going to raise you from death itself so you can enjoy all things. You will spend the rest of eternity here in this restored earth in your restored bodies just as Christ's body was restored so will you be bodily restored and you'll be using your personality and your gifts and your abilities to cultivate civilization for all of eternity enjoying life with God at the center of worship which was his plan in the beginning. He's restoring all things. This entire passage has tremendous meaning. The resurrection redefines how you relate to injustice, suffering, and weakness on Monday morning. You don't need to downplay it. You don't need to try and disregard it. You don't need to numb yourself to it. You don't need to despair it or try and forget it. God's grace gives you perfect strength in the midst of it. Church, let's turn to him. Church, let's remember him. May the good news of the gospel cause you to live each day with this bold humility. May the grace of God that rescued you continue to renew you and continue to restore you and may the healing power of God's grace cause you to desire to live to the glory of his grace because Jesus Christ in his saving serving wisdom was rich and he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich amen